0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Five.
1: The problem we've got is that Britain isn't growing fast enough, so people's incomes have fallen behind. Four.
0: It's almost the first time in his premiership, I think, that he's been willing to upset people in order to make some political progress. Three.
1: Boris Johnson
2: has come out of the traps very, very annoyed about rowing back on his green vision. What is that sweet taste, Halligan, in our mouths? Not a bag full of Percy pigs from M&S, but the sweet taste of vindication.
0: One. We have the Star. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Nice, strong hello there, (laughs) co-pilot. Rishi Sunak's rowing back on some of the government's net zero policies, putting clear blue water between the Tories and Labour ahead of an upcoming general election. The Prime Minister's clearly been listening to Planet Normal. Our guest last week was Lincoln's Tory MP, Carl McCartney, who argued passionately that net zero policies were hammering his rural constituents, making the cost of living crisis even worse. Having previously treated McCartney as a rebel... Downing Street's now turned to him to explain to the media why Sunak has changed his mind. A week, as they say, is a long time in politics. In other news, inflation is down against expectations, so will the Bank of England now finally stop raising interest rates? I'm not holding my breath. And ooh-la-la Labour! Keir Starmer's been hanging out with Emmanuel Macron, presenting himself as the UK's Prime Minister-in-waiting. But would a Starmer government take Britain back into the European Union via the back door? Then there's Russell Brand, genius cult comedian or loony conspiracy theorist. Take your pick. This is a man who courts and causes controversy. But should allegations of sexual misconduct, allegations, not charges, be reason for someone to lose their work and their livelihood, as seems to have happened to Brand? It's a tough moral question. Very much a dilemma of our times. You've written this week, Alison, on Brand and on Theresa May in this week's Telegraph. The links are in the show notes to this episode. But I know you're actually pretty chuffed that your guest from last week, with his previously toxic net zero views, is now very much inside the fold, having been taken to the bosom of government.
2: Yay, go planet normal. Uh, what is that sweet taste, Halligan, in our mouth? Not a bag full of Percy pigs from MS, but the sweet taste of vindication. <laughs>
0: See, I'm more of a Colin the caterpillar man myself. But anyway... (laughs) (laughs)
2: What are those sour snakes? I always quite like those as well. They call in the caterpillars. Oh, they call it the caterpillars. Oh, well. Yeah, but anyway, so how extraordinary because it's only, it seems like only a matter of a few days ago that Rishi Sunak's people were briefing that there was going to be no resiling from the 2030 ban on new petrol and diesel cars. But as you say, 30 minutes is now a long time in politics (laughs) with this floundering, floundering government. And, And I know, co pilot, We have both had mounting doubts, haven't we, about the feasibility of net zero? And I think we we do keep saying this to listeners, which is not that we're not on the side of environment or obviously transitioning at some point to cleaner energy. But I, Liam, have become convinced that our 2050 net zero target will be an act of national suicide. And I was been very shocked to discover projected costs of over two trillion pounds. We can barely rustle up two million at the moment. I was also shocked to find we've made almost no preparations for that target to even be attainable. We haven't been building any new nuclear power stations. We haven't even started to expand the national grid to begin to support all those millions of electric vehicles. But apparently we've had consensus, I think, from both of the parties, Labour and Lib Dems, obviously, but even the Conservatives, the idea that going back to the Middle Ages is a small price to pay for setting an example as a world leader. And that consensus really held until Yesterday, when we suddenly saw what Carl McCartney, I thought a terrific guest last week, and our listeners really enjoyed listening to Carl. Carl had been pointing out to us last week, of course, he had been a long-term member of the Transport Select Committee. That's the government's own committee. And Carl and the committee had been warning the government that this electric vehicle target 2030 was both unrealistic and dangerous. And Carl said we were, our ears pricked up, Liam, didn't they, when he said that there were senior people, even in the cabinet, who thought that the hasty pursuit of net zero was total madness. And we also had flagged up the Climate Change Committee, extremely influential committee, which seems to be frightening MPs from speaking out. But as you say now, not smell of burning tires, bit of a U-turn. We're recording this now on Wednesday. He is due, Rishi, later this afternoon to announce some row back from the policies, particularly the absurd 2030 electric vehicle target, and possibly the gas boiler, oil boiler target, which is potentially causing people so much harm. But Before I come to you, co-pilot, just to say, to remind people that Boris Johnson has come out of the traps very, very annoyed about rowing back on his green vision. It was Boris Johnson who put that 2030 target. He made it up on the fly, typical Boris, to show off at the COP26 meeting. So now his amour proper is piqued by this thing. But anyway, exciting times, co-pilot, potentially one of the biggest changes that we've seen from this
0: government. So the way I see it is this, we obviously need to sort out our environment. We need to leave a much cleaner better planet for our kids and our our grandkids of course what's always troubled me is who pays for the transition to net zero how quickly it happens and if technology is able to drive it rather than merely bankrupting us we can all be net zero to go back to your medieval analogy if we live in wattle and daub huts (laughs) Um, but it wouldn't necessarily make for a better or more stable nation or world. So my concerns for many years have been on the economics of this and the technology of this. I don't like the idea of bureaucrats picking a technology the way they've picked electric vehicles and then subsidising it and then compelling us pretty much by law to adopt it, even if it may not be the right technology. This 2030 ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars, it is about to be pushed back, as you and I have predicted for some time. It's going to go back to 2035, where it probably, where it already is with the the EU. Mm. So if the kind of bien-pensant dinner party set, love the EU, we're just going to where the EU is. They should be cheering that. Quite. The problem I have with bureaucrats picking technologies is this. Do you remember those traditional light bulbs that we weren't allowed to use because Brussels told us we had to adopt fluorescent light bulbs, even though they were really dim and expensive? Well, of course, I shop bought a tons of them and put them in my garage so i was all set because the law was changing and i had to get rid of those old-fashioned traditional light bulbs within two years of that edict coming down from the european commission led light bulbs came to the fore they became financially and economically feasible and they're much much better than fluorescent light bulbs so of course all those fluorescent light bulbs are now not being used so the technology the point is the technology that the bureaucrats the officials the civil servants picked turned out to be the wrong technology and i'm not convinced at all and haven't been for many years that ev is the right technology if it was definitely the right technology the government wouldn't have to give away hundreds of millions of pounds to international companies like Tata, like Stellantis, the owner of Vauxhall, Fiat, and and so on, to build factories that create EVs. These gigafactories would be going up left, right, and center, but they're not because the private sector isn't convinced that this is really the way. The car companies have to be convinced because the government's telling them that they won't be able to make Anything other than electric cars and hybrids from 2030 now pushed back to 2035. So, of course, they've got a shift. But a lot of international capital, a lot of very smart people think that there's a problem with this. And that's just one aspect of what Sunak is talking about. I think it's basically a realisation of reality. The cost of living crisis is being made much worse for a lot of people and will be made much worse when they have to adhere to these net zero policies. And it's increasingly clear that the real burden of this falls disproportionately on less well-off people, on vulnerable households, because energy and transport, which is the, the epicentre of this policy initiative, they spend disproportionately heavily on energy and transport. And, of course, it's all very well to spend 80 grand on a family car and then they can tell their friends that they've, that they've gone green but regular families can't do that they're going to buy a second-hand car they're going to buy a car for sort of five or ten grand maybe they're going to be buying vans vans that make their businesses work vans that mean they can keep the wolf from the door from month to month and pay their bills and put food on the table and keep kith and kin together so for me the real kind of distance between a political media class and reality was when I heard Alex Sharma on the radio this morning. He was the former cabinet minister who cried at the COP summit in Glasgow because he was so overwhelmed with the importance of the net zero targets. And he said, it's such a shame for the prime minister to throw away this political consensus. No, Alex Sharma, there is no political consensus. There's a complete lack of consensus because The vast majority of the public, it seems to me, while wanting a better environment, while be willing to make some sacrifices to get that better environment, are scared that these zealous green policies are going to bankrupt them and their family. That is the reality. That is the fear that lots of people have. And Sunak, to his credit, by moving this target back, by tweaking the policy rather than abandoning it, it is to his credit that he is realising the reality on the ground.
2: I think, as always, with this government, we, we have to ask, where's this coming from? We've had the head of the union boss, Gary Smith, the head of the GMB. So that's very Labour, saying this is causing problems for working-class communities. We've had Liz Truss' influential speech this week, basically saying exactly what Rishi had to do, and he's now he's obligingly doing it. And as you say, Liam, the polling... Shows that 76% of 2019 Conservative voters oppose the 2030 petrol diesel car ban with 59% resistant to the 2035 gas boiler phase out. So you might say that as Carl McCartney urged upon the government last week, this is a period of pragmatism. It it does make politics a bit more interesting, doesn't it? Because Rachel Reeves, she's the shadow chancellor. She was saying today, joining in all the outraged green critics, the prime minister's U-turn will hold Britain back from achieving its potential. But do we think that Labour would actually reintroduce Boris's 23 electric vehicle target? Well, I absolutely don't think it is. I think this is going to have to go further. This is a first toddler step, really. I think we should be pressing for the Climate Change Act, disastrous act introduced by the virtue signalling Theresa May, to be sure I would like to see that repealed.
0: I think this is smart politics and Rishi Sunak, not only because it addresses issues among his own backbenchers and among a lot of his sort of core votes, it also brings back to the Tory party a lot of those Red Wall voters who, Gary Smith of the GMP, yeah. Britain's third biggest union, a very, very smart trade unionist, very politically astute guy, yeah, he is speaking up for them And those Red Wall voters who voted Tory in 2019, they need another reason to vote Tory. And a reason for them to vote Tory would be that they feel that London lefty lawyer Keir Starmer's Labour Party just doesn't understand the realities of everyday life for ordinary people. And while they drive their Teslas and tell each other how green they are, a lot of people out there in the real world are really concerned. And Rishi Sunak can tap into them and try and keep that Boris Johnson, ironically, coalition of red wall traditional Labour voters and traditional Conservative voters, the coalition that won Boris an 80 seat majority. I think, look, Starmer is odds on to win the general election at this point. Uh, Sunak has an awful long way to go. But in making this move, it's almost the first time in his premiership, I think, that he's been willing to upset people in order to make some political Progress. And that in itself is progress, whether it's a Labour or a Conservative Prime Minister or any Prime Minister doing that, because that is leadership. That is actually having the courage of your convictions and wanting to be respected rather than wanting to be liked. So, in that sense, I think he deserves credit for what he's done. But let's just park that co pilot because we've got a lot to get through. I wanted to mention, if I may, inflation, because We are recording on Wednesday. The inflation number came out this morning. It was down 6.7% during the year to August, down from 6.8% in July. And that represents big progress because there was a big feeling, certainly in financial markets, that inflation was actually going to go up because we had a big spike in petrol and diesel prices in August. The biggest monthly increase in petrol and diesel prices for 23 years, by the way, Why did that happen? Because the oil price went from about $70 a barrel in June to more like $90 a barrel by the end of August. And it's currently $95 a barrel. So there was an uptick in fuel prices during August, but it was offset by falls in core inflation, in service sector inflation, and so on. But having said that, even though inflation has come down in August, I'm not expecting the Bank of England at midday today to hold interest rates. I still think there'll be an interest rate rise the 15th successive rise from 5 to 5.25% probably to 5.5%. Do you
2: why are they not even letting previous rises bed in they seem to just be, they seem to have done very little perilously little and now they do too much they don't seem to be able to take a kind of reasoned middle way
0: it's because in my view they're overcompensating for their previous failures mm. the bank of england in retrospect mm. looks really dumb Because throughout much of 2021, people like me were writing in The Telegraph and elsewhere that post-lockdown, there will be a big surge in inflation because of supply chain issues, because of a wall of demand, because of 450 billion quid of more quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, which unlike the previous period of quantitative easing after the 2008 financial crisis, COVID era quantitative easing, didn't stay within the financial system. It was paid directly into the bank accounts of firms and households through C-bill loans, furlough schemes, and so on. So it was bound to be inflationary. But the Bank of England kept denying it. They kept saying, don't worry, this inflation, if it comes, will be transitory. And the same words were used by the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank. Central bankers just sort of clinging together in their self-important club, and yet it wasn't transitory it was the opposite of transitory it's incredibly stubborn <laughs> inflation and that's what we've got and having been so slow to start raising rates the bank of england and so cautious at the beginning the bank of england is now showing how hard it is how tough it is how vigilant against inflation it is by raising rates too much they should have stopped raising rates in march or april this year these rate rises we've had since then They won't kick in in for 12 to 18 months, by which time inflation will be down below the 2% target and they'll actually be driving the dangers of deflation. So it's all about the Bank of England trying to make up for its previous errors. And this demonstrates the lack of diversity on the Bank of England, the lack of cognitive diversity (laughs) on the Bank of England, the lack of proper intellectual, rigorous debate among credible people who don't all think the same, who aren't all the same type. The Bank of England is almost monocultural economically, it seems to me. They're all basically soft left Keynesians. There's no monetarists there at all. So no one who really understands the implications for inflation of broadening the money supply and quantitative easing. When people like me, have raised these concerns. We've been disdained by the Bank of England crew. We shouldn't be disdained now. We should be listened to because it turns out that we were right.
2: So elsewhere, the news, of course, has been dominated, Liam, hasn't it, by Russell Brand. Sunday Times, Channel 4's Dispatches programme have produced four allegations of rape, assault and emotional abuse against the comedian and actor, all dating back over 10 years, caused a huge and heated debate. And it has, as it happens so often with news now, rather depressingly taken a tribalist turn. So everyone's seeing it through their own political lens. And I try to unpack that In my Telegraph column on Wednesday, the left, of course, are delighted now to have an alt-right scalp. I think that's what everybody I think I see Brand as a kind of Tory anarchist, really, but they like to call him alt-right or fascist or whatever. You'll remember, Liam, that Russell Brand used to be a sort of social socialist justice warrior. But now he's become the most hated conspiracy theorist on YouTube and he's moved his platform onto Rumble. But he just does have this astonishing following six and a half million people, I believe, over social media as a whole. Russell Brand has 28 million followers. So we're talking about an incredibly powerful person, once the poster boy of the left, now absolutely despised by him. So people like me on the right are slightly asking, wondering about the timing. Brand's most sleazy behavior when he was that thing you don't get called anymore, do you? A legendary Lothario that belongs to years ago. But, you know, he did have this clearly toxic attitude to women i was looking this week at some of his stand-up routines dear god liam people in the audience men and women really laughing at this actually quite repugnant blowjob type jokes not really bordering on sexual abuse i would say but back then he did have powerful protectors on the left you're going to love this he was voted the world's fourth most influential figure by Prospect magazine. He guest edited the new Statesman. He stepped out with Jemima Khan for a long time. He was a Guardian columnist. And I came down on him like a ton of bricks during the uh, affair that was known as Saxgate when Russell Brandon, Jonathan Ross rang up. Uh, Andrew Sachs, the beloved and then elderly actor, now sadly died. Manuel
0: from Forty Towers. From
2: Forty Towers. And people will remember that Andrew Sachs's granddaughter had been going out with Russell Brand and they were making all sorts of lewd comments on Andrew Sachs's answer phone, causing immense distress to him and to this rather vulnerable young woman, Georgina Bailey. But of course, all the left absolutely went for Georgina Bailey and stood up for marvellous Russell because he was one of them. So now we've got, it's all changed, topsy-turvy. The left are saying, dreadful Russell Brand. Who could possibly have known that he had terrible attitudes to women? And the right is all piling in with their conspiracy theories. I think the truly worrying thing for me, Liam, is the cancellation of Russell Brand on the basis of mere allegations. So YouTube has suspended his ability to earn money from that platform where he has millions of followers. And the BBC, of course, ever late to the party, has removed some content featuring their former favourite bad boy from iPlayer, having assessed that it now falls below public expectations. Well, who could possibly have guessed that? And Russell Brand, very, very clever guy, manipulative, but very, very verbal and clever. And he once told Lorraine Kelly, when Lorraine Kelly suggested that some of his sleazy exploits had been enabled by his broadcast employers, yes, I suppose if you're in a position of some success, people will let you be a nutter as long as they're making money out of you.
0: For me, Alison, this story is less about the kind of swirling tribal loyalties of sort of media people. Though I'm not undermining what you're saying on that front. For me, the real issue here is innocence until proven guilty. And yeah, you know, I think Russell Brand is a moron. I think he comes out with completely inane nonsense. I, don't, I think he's flash and he's got a certain verbal dexterity. I don't think he's particularly bright. Uh, And never have. I've never really understood the fixation of so many media people on him. But even though I don't like what he says, I defend his right to say, it. of course, it's a free country. And also, I do worry while we should always take allegations of sexual misconduct seriously, particularly rape. Yes, let's take them seriously. But I think before we start cancelling people, before we start taking away their livelihood, however much I disapprove of his (laughs) livelihood, before we start doing things that people can't recover from financially and professionally, allegations should at least be police checked And we're, we're still a long way from that. And the fear that I have, much as I don't like Russell Brand, as much as I want to take allegations seriously, and I do, the fear I have here is that you've had trial by media. yeah, And you've had somebody completely cancelled, even though... We have no idea, or otherwise, whether or not they're guilty of actually breaking the law. Hi, Tony Diver here, the Telegraph's US editor in Washington DC. I've launched a new free-to-read newsletter from the US editor. Featuring insight from our correspondents around the world, and thought-provoking opinion from leading journalists in both Britain and the USA, The newsletter is packed with the best of the Telegraph's global coverage. Visit telegraph.co.uk forward slash from the US editor to sign up. Liz Truss needs little introduction. The MP for South West Norfolk was, of course, the shortest serving Prime Minister in British history, bowing out after 49 days last October. But Truss is nothing if not determined. And this week, she made her first major speech since leaving office, defending her economic record and arguing forcefully for a small state, lower taxes and tighter controls on public spending, what she calls traditional Tory policies. Since being elected to Parliament in 2010, Liz Truss has held many big jobs, including Environment Secretary, Lord Chancellor, Trade Secretary and Foreign Secretary, before entering number 10 last September. And while she denies any desire to run for the leadership of her her party once again, Truss has placed herself at the heart of a sizeable group of campaigning Tory MPs, pushing for what she calls pro-growth measures that promote enterprise and economic prosperity rather than an ever-growing state. Liz Truss, thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal.
1: Great to be on the show, Liam.
0: Liz, you've given a major speech to kick off this week. You're concerned about 25 years of economic consensus taking us down the wrong road. How so?
1: The problem we've got is that Britain isn't growing fast enough. So people's incomes have fallen behind. So compared to somebody in the United States, a Brit is £9,100 worse off. And that problem is getting worse. And I believe the problem is there's too much regulation, the government has got too big, and it's squeezing the productivity and enterprise out of Britain. It's just too hard now to get things done.
0: At the turn of the millennium, UK government spending was about 34% of GDP. It's now 46 How did that happen and why should we care?
1: Well, first of all, it's not just about the sheer amount of spending. It's also the regulation, the restrictions, you know, everything from the planning system to the net zero targets. There's been so much extra regulation put on people and businesses. It makes it harder to get things done. But also we've seen a big rise in the benefits system, in the welfare state. That's gone up by 50% since the year 2000. Plus we've had all the things like COVID, which has increased the size of government. It's all added up. We're now at 46%. It's the highest it's been since 1975. That was the one year in the 70s when it was higher.
0: And why is that a bad thing? Why does that slow down the economy Why are you inherently opposed to that when so many other people making up this consensus seem pretty happy?
1: Because ultimately what brings money into Britain is making things and selling things, whether that's goods or services. So the more people are employed by the government, the less of that we're doing, the more it squeezes out that activity. And also all the regulations on those people mean there just isn't the incentive. If I'm paying more and more money in tax... And we know some people are paying a 71% marginal tax rate. That means that for every extra pound I earn, I'm only getting 29 pence back. You know, that is
0: a problem. Tell me what you want to happen now with corporation tax, with planning, with how we run the economy in general.
1: So corporation tax, we need to get it back to 19%, which is what it was before, or indeed lower. We need to make Britain competitive. We want to attract big businesses. And we're now having to give businesses subsidies to come to Britain, you know, whether it's Tata or other companies, because the level of taxes are too high. So we need to reduce the level of corporation tax. We need to make our planning system much easier. If you want to build a factory in Britain, it's going to take you at least two years. Other countries are offering building it straight away. Which are you going to choose if you're a company that wants to open a new factory producing goods. So all of those things have to be made simpler and easier to do.
0: A lot of journalists use shorthand for your premiership. They say you crashed the economy. Why don't you agree with that form of words?
1: The key indicators when I was in office, like the rates people were paying on mortgages, the level of gilts, they've been exceeded since. So none of the things that happened during that period were unique to that time at all. And I think the fact is, look, I know we had to do things quickly. It was important. People wanted change. But at the same time, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of resistance within the financial institutions and within the wider political and economic arena. People don't like these policies at the moment, even though they'd benefit the country, even though they help the country to grow. People don't believe in Tax cuts, or people in those jobs don't believe in those things.
0: So to be clear, you're highlighting, you're not arguing, because it's true that mortgage costs, the the amount of money ordinary families have to pay to service their home loans, is much higher now than when you were in office, even though many of your proposals were reversed or not even implemented.
1: That's right, because interest rates were going to go up anyway. I mean, we've had very low interest rates for a very long time, and that's a problem for the economy because we weren't seeing the dynamism that would have helped lead to economic growth. So I'm afraid central banks across the world were pumping money into the system, helping governments raise the levels of spending, but ultimately they weren't helping us become more competitive. They weren't helping Britain make more things. And we're now in a position where we've got both the high interest rates, but also the low growth.
0: Former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney took a bit of a pop at you over the weekend. He said that the Trust Administration had created not Singapore on Thames, but Argentina on Thames, a reference, of course, to financial instability. What's your response to Mark Carney and other central bankers who have been less than supportive of your policies?
1: Well, Mark Carney is part of the 25 year consensus. He doesn't want things to change. He is somebody who benefits from government being big because it gives more power to bureaucrats, to people who work in big corporations. And he also wants to pin the blame on me and other politicians rather than acknowledging that central banks made mistakes. And we know mistakes were made. We know that interest rates weren't hiked quickly enough. We know that Part of the cause of the rise of inflation was they lost control of the money supply. These are some of the reasons that we're in the situation we're in now. But I'm afraid people like Mark Carney would rather point fingers at others than admit what he got wrong.
0: And you talked about pushback to your policies, resistance to your policies. You've talked about an overmighty bureaucracy. Try and explain the reality of that to people unlike you and me who follow politics closely, who don't know Westminster that well. What kind of pushback are we talking about, Liz Truss?
1: Well, I think this is true across Whitehall and across government. But certainly over the last 30 years, we now have more independent bodies that mark the government's homework, like the Office for Budget Responsibility, like the Environment Agency, these type of bodies who make decisions. And quite often as an elected politician you find yourself restricted in terms of what you can do by the decisions those bodies make. And those people are not elected. In fact, very few people know who runs the OBR. These people have a lot of power because they create the forecasts that the, the markets look at when they assess a government's economic policy. So I think it's partly about just how big government has got and how balkanized it's got. You know, it's 46% of GDP. That's a lot of civil servants. There's a lot of bureaucrats. But it's also about the governance of that system and who's making the decisions. And as a politician, I was very clear the mandate I had based on our win at the 2019 election. We promised not to put up taxes. We promised to get the British economy growing. We promised people a better standard of living, and I wanted to deliver that. But what I found was that the institutions, like the Treasury, like the Office of Budget Responsibility, simply didn't agree with those policies.
0: You've complained in the past about a particular leak that came from the OBR of a forecast that turned out to be wildly over-pessimistic, but which you've said forced your hand. Can you outline that?
1: So what happened was there was a leak, I think it was around early October from the OBR saying there would be a gap of £70 billion in my spending plan. Or
0: if you kept corporation tax at 19%.
1: Yeah, if I'd kept the package, and the whole package was designed to get the British economy going to attract investment and companies uh, into the UK. And them leaking that caused people in the markets to worry that the government's plans were not fiscally credible. So... I was put under pressure, therefore, to reverse the corporation tax decision, even though I believed it was a wrong decision for the country because independent forecasters have suggested that over time corporation tax helps bring in more revenue, more jobs, more opportunities.
0: Let's just unpack that because that's quite astonishing. You're saying that faceless public sector bureaucrats paid for by taxpayers forced you by leaking something from their own department, forced your hand as our Prime Minister.
1: Now, I don't know who, who put the leak in the press, but the leak was there in the press. There are various parts of the government machinery which do leak, yes. And it was directly the leaking of that, that forecast that forced us to reverse those decisions. The forecast, which subsequently proved to be completely wrong,
0: Indeed. Before we talk about what you'd like to see, what you want to do, which policies you'd like your party to adopt, let's just talk a little bit more about your tenure. What would you have done differently? I have to ask you that.
1: First of all, it, the whole thing happened very suddenly. You know, I was in Indonesia, I was Foreign Secretary, I was at G20 meeting and the most important thing would have been to have a lot more preparation time. I believe very firmly that we need to change our economic policy. And I felt that we had to do it quickly, because people had voted for change in 2016 and 2019. But I don't think I had enough time to put together a plan to talk to all the people that were necessary, and to recruit the team and the broader supporters that that type of policy needed. Because The fundamental problem here was not enough people supported the policies. We made mistakes around communication. We made mistakes around implementation. But fundamentally, the policies were not falling on fertile ground. A lot of the media didn't understand what we were trying to do. I think the wider political groupings didn't necessarily understand that. And it takes quite a long time. If you look at what happened in the 70s when the monetarists started making their case. It took a long time to get that case through, and we were very short of time.
0: What do you want to happen now? What do you want to happen when it comes to net zero, when it comes to planning reforms, when it comes to the enterprise zones, the reform of IR35, the policies that you championed?
1: So first of all, on net zero, we have to delay the 2030 target. The we've map. got to delay that, and we've got to get rid of the deadlines to get rid of oil and gas boilers. Anything that hurts people in the pocket now, we have to get rid of. One of my pledges during the leadership campaign was get rid of the green energy levy. But I think we need to go further than that. We need to get on with fracking so we get cheap energy into this country. And I think it is a massive problem that people here are paying twice what they're paying in the US for their energy bills. And that makes our businesses uncompetitive everything from steel to ceramics, and it makes our households who are really struggling with the cost of living a lot worse off. So I think we have to delay net zero, we have to look at it again, and we have to say, what is China doing? What are other countries doing? Are we ending up exporting our carbon, which ends up belching out of some Chinese coal plant? that's, That's what I think we should do.
0: How about on planning? you're unlike a lot of people in your party, you actually think we do need to build on parts of the greenbelt, right?
1: and particularly around London. so within London's greenbelt, you could build a million houses if you built within a mile of a train or tube station, and I think we've we've just got to do that. The situation is so serious. people's house prices are so high. the cost of renting in London is so high we We just have to get on with that. But also the planning system needs to be completely simplified. Once it's agreed an area will be built on, provided builders comply with building regulations, they should be able to get on with it. The process is far too complicated. I've talked about I used to sit on a planning committee as a councillor. Years of my life, I'll never get back. Everybody's just caught up in this bureaucracy. Nothing is happening or getting built.
0: How have we got to the point where so many members of your party... Traditionally, a centre-right, free market-leaning party disagree with you, even though polling evidence suggests quite a lot of the public actually agree with your policies.
1: I think that we stopped making the argument. So once we'd won the Cold War, once the economy was back on track in the 1990s, I think Conservatives stopped making the argument and we allowed the left, you know, with their sort of climate change agenda with the, you know, the Occupy movement, the anti-capitalist people, the Extinction Rebellion people, we allowed these people too much airspace. And instead of fighting back and saying what people actually want is to be able to aspire, they want a house for their children to be able to live in, they want to buy a car, we appeased them. And we've, we've appeased them, you know, whether it's Conservative councils declaring a climate change emergency, or whether it's the government legislating for net zero by 2050 without fully understanding the costs, or whether it's you know the energy, the energy price cap, and you know, exceeding to some of those socialist arguments, and I think the problem I faced last year is I was trying to make a lot of those arguments late in the day, when the ground hadn't been properly laid, and now. What I think we need to do as conservatives is make those arguments again. But we need to make them in the modern context of dealing with the problems we face now. So in the 70s, we faced problems with trade unions and badly run industry. We now face a problem with an overly big state, too many quangos, too much power in the hands of quangocrats and very, very cumbersome regulation that stopped people doing things. So We need to make new arguments about the situation we're in now.
0: Do you think much of the public supports you, Liz Truss? If so, who, where?
1: I think a lot of people want what I want. You know, they want to have more opportunities, to be better off. They want their children to have a great future. I'm not sure that every single policy I advocate has massive public support. I mean, if you look at things like building more homes, it doesn't have massive public support, but... We need to do it in order to give people the opportunities that they want. So we have to get better at making a case as well as delivering the results as well.
0: And finally, you've been in politics a long time, if I may say. You're very, very experienced, held many big jobs. Your eyes are wide open. You know politics is a rough business. But how did it feel to be basically bundled out of office and to have been subject to so much finger pointing and blame how do you get through it
1: I was there for a reason because I wanted to change things and that was my absolute focus I did everything I could within my powers now of course there are lots of things maybe in retrospect I think I could have done differently but at the time I did what I felt needed to be done and of course it's been very difficult it's been very bruising but I'm in politics to change things. And that desire to change things has not gone anywhere.
0: Liz Truss, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank
1: you. I really enjoyed that interview
2: with Liz Truss-Liam. I met Liz uh, a few months ago and I'd always been a bit dubious about her, but uh, we had a few drinks and she's great. And as she said to you, she was talking about the immense difficulty of governing even when you are elected, you know, when you are elected into power. So I thought part of the, I mean, she said some very, very interesting things and well done to you for getting that interview in such a prominent week for her. But, you know, talking about the resistance within the institutions. So things that she wanted to do which she was perfectly entitled to do like not raising corporation tax but making sure that it stayed the same so we could be competitive, lots of very sensible policies which were lost of course in all the turmoil of the way that she was as you said bundled out. But I thought that that really stood out for me and you picked up didn't you? on some of these false forecasts or dodgy forecasts from places like the OBR, which make Britain a very difficult place to govern because of
0: institutional resistance. I do think the OBR has become a bit of a multi-headed monster. Look, I'm all for good economic modelling. I'm all for ministers being kept away, to some degree, economic forecasting, though economic forecasting has always been a rather grubby art rather than a science. But it strikes me that the OBR has taken on a kind of political hue. The OBR, the IFS, these are all massively state-funded organisations. They like tax. They like government spending. They don't like less government spending in under pretty much any circumstances but varying levels of government spending is what statecraft and responsible running of big countries is is about sometimes you have to do it and it strikes me that the obr it is sort of endemically pessimistic the forecasts it makes about tax revenues are often massively underestimated and the forecasts that it makes about the size of government deficits are often massively overestimated, out by tens of billions, in some cases hundreds of billions of pounds over recent years.
2: So do you think they set out to get trust? What was the motive? They wanted this consensus, low-growth consensus, people like Carney, Cheeky, saying it's more like Argentina on Thames, avoiding responsibility for himself. Did they want to get her? Did they want to stop her making these changes?
0: I don't think it was necessarily as conscious as that but these organizations they do have a kind of center left bias when they shouldn't have any bias at all they should be as Mm. scientific as they possibly can be and this is a problem for somebody like Liz Truss who is trying to put forward traditional conservative policies policies which have for the most part won general elections over recent Mm. decades policies which for the most part The silent majority of British voters actually agree with, even though the political and media class, as it's become less representative of ordinary people throughout our lifetimes, Alison, they don't like them. And and, and this is a major problem. I don't think that OBR should be leaking forecasts that force the hand of the prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland to do certain things. And Trust said on the record, I was forced to do it was a reversal of her policy to keep corporation tax at 19% rather than putting it up to 25%. Trust said in this speech to the Institute for Government that leaking by the OBR of its forecast or that leaking from the OBR of its forecast basically determined what her policy was going to be. It forced her to do something that she didn't want to do, even though she was the democratically elected prime minister now some people would say oh but she wasn't democratically elected because she didn't win a general election mm. because you know the Tory faithful elected her but you know Labour does that too Gordon Brown didn't win a general election right he was it was a coronation so yeah that's just a flaw of our system and you can have endless general elections if you want when you have turmoil within parties but I think the public doesn't like lots of elections it, doesn't election for one party or t'other and wants you to get on with it for five years until it has to think about it again. And then it will. So I do think there was a systemic kind of institutional bias towards her. I do think it's disturbing that the Bank of England did something called quantitative tightening, throwing billions of pounds of government debt at the markets while Truss was preparing her mini budget. And then when Sunak and Hunt came in, the sensibles, the nice people, the Bank of England reversed that decision by buying guilt from the market again, so called quantitative easing. So, you know, the market looked bad under Truss and it looked good under Sunak and Hunt. Well, under Sunak and Hunt, probably the principal exhibit in Truss's defense of herself, and she's right in this sense under Sunak and Hunt, mortgage rates, guilt rates, interest rates, are now far, far higher than mm. they were mm. at the height of the, quotes turmoil of the mini budget. But, you know, it's a very convenient soundbite for the left to say Liz Trust crashed the economy, even though Britain now is middle of the pack when it comes to growth within the G7, even though Britain is actually doing much better than a lot of the European Union when it comes to growth. But because the political and media class keep saying Liz Truss crashed the economy, Liz Truss crashed the economy, Labour are going to keep saying it, and the sort of nuanced truth, the the grey truth rather than black and white, gets lost. And for sort of economic analysts like me, that's really really frustrating. I do think quite a lot of the public sees through this, but an awful lot of it doesn't. They just assume that Liz Truss and her determination to lower taxes Crash the economy. And that's dangerous because when taxes are at a 70-year high, at some stage you need to lower them. I do
2: think though that this really highlights this great tussle for the Conservative Party's soul. I did a piece again in my column this week about Theresa May, who announced on Times Radio that she was woke and proud calling for a sensitive approach to issues surrounding gender. And this really made me see red, And because... Sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I know. I know normally I'm a sort, of sort of peaceable lady. But, you know, it, this is a Marxist creed imported from the United States. And it is pretty much the enemy of everything that a conservative is supposed to believe in. And this woman was the leader of the Conservative Party. And she most certainly is not talking for the vast majority of members. And I suspect strongly that Liz Truss is much closer in sensibility and gut instinct to those ordinary Conservatives. And yet it was Theresa May who became a tremendously disastrous perhaps one of our worst ever prime ministers. So I think good for Liz and maybe with her, some of her attacks, I think that she can help edge a very cautious Rishi Sunak, the tortoise across the car, being pushed across the carpet, to try and actually come up with some Tory policies before the general election.
0: For my money, I've known Liz Truss a while. I'm quite well acquainted with the various economists on the Growth Commission that she has created, economists from around the world. And what I want is a proper debate. I want a Labour Party that's electable, and I want a Conservative Party that reflects traditional Tory values. And that means one nation Conservatives, you know, who are a bit more big state, a bit sort of softer and woollier around the edges, a bit closer to the Lib Dems, but also the sort of centre-right Tories. We need them as well. We need all aspects of the political spectrum to be alive and kicking and Liz Truss she undermined the idea that tax cuts can help growth and help the economy and raise more tax revenue that's a very popular mainstream idea that has an awful lot of empirical evidence to back it up in the real world over many decades in many situations and for that reason at least I'm glad that she is actually now once again finding her voice
2: now onto our listener emails your messages sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read your thoughts. We've had an avalanche of mail the last week on various different topics. Now, obviously this week we've had a big reaction to Russell Brand. This is from Buford. This is a clear mainstream media hatchet job with an agenda behind it, I think. It's quite sickening. Having the morals of an alley cat and being a randy sod, putting it about with impressionable women is not a criminal offence. Morally questionable, yes, but not illegal. And you can bet your bottom dollar there are plenty more people lurking in the BBC and Channel 4 like that. It's quite an eye-opener that unproven allegations, it seems, is all that is needed the these days, what the hell is going on here? And JL says, JL is a woman. Brand can't get a fair trial now, whatever happens, and I agree his open admission of sex addiction and predilections make him different from Jimmy Savile, who hid his foul nature under cover of children's TV and charitable works. The media have gone too far. They're becoming judge and jury. It's time the big company stopped caving into its social media trolls and the MSM, and until that's changed and Brand is proved guilty, he has a right to an assumption of innocence. He is unsavoury, but he undoubtedly attracted a a lot of attention from women who are desperate to sleep with him. As a woman, I believe that if a man starts thinking women are willing to jump into bed and sleep with him just because of his money, fame and power, then they should beware. He will have little respect for them and start to behave accordingly. I don't believe 20-year-old accusations from four women should have come out via Channel 4 and The Times. They should have gone to the police and it would have come out if he were charged. As it stands, it does look a bit more like revenge than justice. And if there are powerful people determined to take him down by death of a thousand media cuts, just in case he is innocent, so he is cancelled, whatever the outcome.
0: Powerful email there. This is one in response to your views on the triple lock, Alison. You launched a defense mm. of the triple lock, which, of course, maintains the value of the basic state pension at the average rise in wages, prices, prices or 2.5%, whichever is greater. Richard takes umbrage. I usually agree with everything Alison says, but this is our first lover's tiff, says Richard. Oh no, Richard, no. I haven't got enough lovers. Let's not have a tiff. Pensioners will have paid their taxes mostly nowhere near enough to support years of state pension, but my children will also pay taxes at higher rates for longer and, like myself, may not even receive a state pension. For decades, pensioners with a degree will not have left university with 50k plus debt and a 10% interest rate. So maybe some of this money needs to support the younger generations. My November email about Triple Lock was read out on the podcast. Well done as I felt dismayed that I have to pay for two sets of university accommodation while the government can't find money to reduce their fees, rebuild crumbling schools or increase preventative health diagnosis that will save many lives. But the government can find £10 billion down the back of the sofa for the triple lock. I'm happy for less well-off pensioners, says Richard, to receive extra. But since lockdown, I've come to believe that governments only want to keep the ever-increasing grey vote happy like increased interest rates, which have little effect on inflation, but are a pensioner's dream for their savings and every mortgagee's nightmare. I'm still loving the podcast and I still stand by my principle, says Richard. I've never voting Conservative <laughs> again. A man off your own <laughs> heart after all, Alison.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're setting up our own planet normal party. We'll tell listeners a bit more about that. We got we had a few drinks, didn't we, the other night? Halligan's going to be the Prime Minister. I'm not sure what I'm going to be. But anyway, John says... I listened to your interview with the Tory MP, Carl McCartney, regarding the complete implausibility of the government's net zero nonsense and can only come to the conclusion that there must be something nefarious going on. Oh, John, don't say that. The idea that we can run a modern economy on windmills and solar panels is so utterly insane on its face that I have to assume that those promoting it must be in on some kind of conspiratorial goal. While the people running government might not always be as smart as we'd like, they cannot surely be so stupid as to buy this concept. Unless, of course, their ultimate goal is to permanently restrict the movement of thousands of ordinary people by making cars and trucks so unbelievably expensive to own or run. And for foreign travel to be so unaffordable, inconvenient and difficult to do that we become the eunuchs that Klaus Schwab intends us to be. And given that the main parties are in unison when it comes to this issue, the only way I see any sanity returning is for a new political party, funnily enough, we're just mentioning that, to emerge and be joined by serious and well-known senior politicians who will stand up and resign their current ministerial and parliamentary seats. This issue is so important, says John, and totally eclipses any of the normal policy issues which divide the left and right? Will it happen? I live in hope. Otherwise, we are F blank, 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 D. Well, John, we have had that slight hint of a change in policy from the Prime Minister today. So maybe we're not quite as badly off as that.
0: Klaus Schwab is, of course, Mr Davos, the founder of the World Economic Forum. This is from James. Hello, Planet Normal. Hello, James. Hello, James. When did the world become so toxic, Asked James. Masculinity, workplaces, positivity are all now considered toxic. It's a wonder we've managed to survive so long in such a toxic (laughs) world, filling the natural environment with toxic gases and our social environment with toxic attitudes. This week, the Royal Ballet School has been accused of being toxic by former students. Ballet, an artistic discipline that valorizes a particular version of the human form is toxic for upholding a standard It openly defines a success. How dare they? Jimmy Fallon, the US late-night chat show host, has made a grovelling apology this week, too, for the toxic work culture he'd created, presumably because he demanded funny jokes to be delivered on time for The Tonight Show. A pretty unreasonable request, right? Westminster, the British Army, the CBI, McDonald's, ITV, London Fire Brigade, Everton FC and many more places have been accused lately of being toxic workplaces. It seems toxicity is everywhere. Indeed, a study by a recruitment consultant found that 93% of UK employees said they had experienced a toxic workplace. So if your work environment isn't toxic, you're probably not looking hard enough. Or could it be, asked James, that toxic has become a synonym for standards Mm. and success? Perhaps the work environment isn't toxic. Perhaps you just don't make the grade. Mm. All the best, James.
2: James describes himself as professional, toxic boss man. <laughs> <laughs> Dear me. We start, we're start. getting to that age, Halligan, where we start saying, oh, you know, you don't know you're born. You don't know you're born. People I, people I worked with, people who were my bosses when I started out as a down table sub at the Times. God help us. Um, Ashtray
0: full of fags, <laughs> bottle of whiskey on the go, and it was only 11 a.m. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, newspapers were worth reading, huh? Oh, well, absolutely. It
2: was a ritual humiliation. There was a chief sub at the Times called Harry Hart, a tiny little bald Glaswegian. And I remember once he shouted down the table at me, Alison, we don't have sex in the Times, we have sexual intercourse. And uh, I've never forgotten that Halligan, of course. Those were the days.
0: That is it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our Sanctuary of Sweet Reason, our Flying Refuge of reasoned Views, email of the week, co-pilot.
2: I think it's got to be James for his magnificent diatribe against all things toxic, or in fact, in favour of all things toxic. So James, please send us your full details and we will send you an absolutely magnificent Planet Normal mug.
0: We will indeed, and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel well Elliot Atlantic Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week when Alison will be updating us on the latest antics of her Turkish imported cat. <laughs> until next week, it's <laughs> goodbye from me. Meow, and it's goodbye from him. <laughs> How much? <laughs> How much? <laughs> How much? <laughs>
2: I could, buy, I could buy a Tesla. <laughs> it's all funny, is it? I could buy a Tesla. <laughs>